pray once more. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is perfect, without error, inspired by you, sufficient so that we may live a life that is pleasing to you, God. Pray that you would use this now. Spirit, please use the word to convict, to encourage, to save, to deepen our faith, and to lead us to know you and love you more. Protect me from error, and may we worship you. May I worship by preaching. May um, this congregation worship by engaging and listening. Lord, guard us from distraction, and may we worship by leaving here, applying your truth by your grace and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you will remember Super Bowl twenty seven in 1993. It was the Dallas Cowboys against the Buffalo Bills. And if you remember this game, it's likely because of an infamous play that occurred late in the fourth quarter. Defensive tackle for the Cowboys, Leon Lett, recovered a fumble on the Dallas 35-yard line and began to run toward the end zone. To his dismay, however, as Lett was just feet away from a touchdown, Bills receiver Don Beebe came up from behind and knocked the ball out of his hand, resulting in a touchback for the Bills and no touchdown for the Cowboys. Now, allow me to point out three factors that played into this error. Three factors that played into this error. Number one, at about the 10-yard line, Let began to slow down. That's number one. Number two, at that time, he also began to celebrate by extending his arms out from his body, down low, ball in right hand as he was running toward the end zone. Number three, Let would later admit that he was distracted at this time because he was trying to watch himself on the jumbotron. (laughs) Now, we can't be too hard on Leon because you and I both know that what he did in Super Bowl 27 is just an example of what we all do from time to time, right? He just did it on national television, but we do it all the time right? Our pride has resulted in numerous missed opportunities. We put our foot in our mouths. He's just a representation of who we all are, right? Church, how many blunders have resulted in us believing that we have arrived in some way? This morning, I think that Leon Led is helping us. I think that this morning, Leon Led is, is helping us remember what happens when we act like we've reached our goal when we have not reached our goal. I think he's here this morning to help us remember what happens when we take our eyes off the prize and focus them instead on ourselves. So with that in mind, we go to a very relevant passage of Scripture. So go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 where we've been. This will be our third week in Philippians chapter 3. The elders have given me four weeks to preach because Dan is um, on uh, an extended vacation. 
his son Andy, his second-born son, just got married yesterday. So be in prayer for Allie and Andy. They're now hitched, and uh, I, we got some pictures yesterday, and it was a beautiful wedding. So I'll be thanking and praying about Andy and Allie and their new marriage. I'll be continuing to pray for the Kirks as they, they travel, and they'll be back here in a couple of weeks. Dan, Dan will be back in the pulpit on the 31st. But I've been given these four weeks, and um, I'm choosing to go through Philippians 3. And so before we go into the next passage of Scripture that we'll be studying this morning, let's give some context. Where have we been for the last two weeks? Well, the Apostle Paul here in chapter 3 of Philippians is using his own experience to teach us some important realities about the gospel and some important realities about our Christian lives. In the last two sermons, we have answered the following questions. Number one, where does a genuine believer put his confidence before God? Number two, what does it mean for a Christian after conversion to continue to consider gain is loss? Right? We talked about the gain list and the loss list. Right? Uh, to come to God through Jesus Christ, we must consider our gain to be lost. We must come to God empty-handed through Christ. Right? But then after conversion, after we've been saved, we must continue to consider our gain loss, right? What does that mean? And we've also answered the question, number three, why? Why do believers continue to count gain as loss? So here are the answers that we've had to these three questions. Number one, where does a genuine believer put his confidence before God? The answer, a believer puts his confidence not in the flesh, that is who we are apart from God, Right? Uh, apart from Jesus Christ's saving work. It's our sinful, unredeemed state. That's what the flesh is. So we don't put our confidence in the flesh, but in Christ alone, who lived a completely perfect, righteous life and died as a substitute for our sins, being punished in our place, so that through faith we would be counted by God as if we lived his perfect life. Because he was treated as if he lived our sinful life. We talked about how God only accepts what God provides, right? For salvation, God only accepts what God provides, and he provided the perfect sacrifice in his son for sinners. Number two, the question that we answered, what does it mean for a Christian after conversion to consider losses or to consider gain as loss? The answer is the Christian does not stop trusting in Jesus alone after he's been justified, but continues to live by faith in Jesus, putting no confidence in anything or anyone else for acceptance with God and the receiving of his love. We continue to live by faith. Remember, we looked at Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why, number three, do believers continue to count gain as loss? Well, we continue in that in order to know Christ. We continue to count gain, our old gain list, our old credentials, anything outside of Christ that we trust in. We, we count that as loss so that we may know Christ. So that we can know the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, right? And this just qualifies what it means to know him. Now this morning, we're going to continue talking about Christian living, what it means to live the Christian life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Specifically, uh, we are going to be looking at the anatomy of what it means to press on, the anatomy of pressing on for the Christian. So look with me at Philippians three twelve through 16, and follow along as I read. 
Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So this morning, we're going to look at three points in particular. Three points in particular from this text of Scripture. Number one, the humility of pressing on. The humility of pressing on. Number two, the effort of pressing on. And number three, the focus of pressing on. Let's look at our first point. The humility of pressing on. Now, um, as we explore the anatomy of pressing on, we've got to first decide something about verse 12, okay? So Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. What we've got to determine what the this is in verse 12 before we go any further, all right? If we're going to understand the, the humility of pressing on, we've got to ask the question, what is the this? He says, not that I've already obtained this. Well, to, to understand this, we've got to look back at verse 11, Okay? Here Paul writes, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead for Paul and for us as believers will take place in the end at which we will know Jesus without the hindrance of sin, without the effects of sin. We'll know him then perfectly. We'll become like him perfectly. And let me be clear uh, we're not going to become deity, right? As far as a created person can become like Jesus, we will become like Jesus. But we're not going to become God, but we will become perfectly like him as much as we can without becoming God, right? We're still the creatures. We're still the created beings. So I think what Paul is saying here when he says, not that I've already obtained this, is he's saying he's not yet come to the point where he experiences knowing Christ perfectly. And then he says he's not already perfect, right? He's not, he's not already perfect either. So in verse 12, I think what we have to understand is that uh, the pursuit, the goal, the prize after which Paul is chasing and striving is to know Christ perfectly to become perfectly like him. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. To know him perfectly and to become perfectly like him. Now, if we'll look at what Paul is saying here in verse 12, he's essentially saying, I have not arrived. Right? I mean, if we were to use a phrase that we use in our culture, I have not arrived. The monumental figure, Paul, He's the monumental figure of the Christian faith. And after 30 years or more of being a Christian, he knew that there was still more ground to gain in knowing Christ and becoming like him. He knew that the flesh was still with him, right? And he knew that it's not until we're brought to heaven that we experience the fullness of what he's chasing after, what he's striving after. 
It's in heaven when we'll become perfectly like him. It's in heaven when we'll know him perfectly, right? He knew that was going to take place in heaven. And so you may say to me, okay, why strive? Why press on towards something that is going to happen in heaven, but not this life? If we can't achieve it, if we can't get to it in this life, why, why strain? Why press on? Why exert all this energy? If it's going to happen in heaven, you, know, you, you may think, well, I'll just do what I want to do. Live how I want to live. It's going to happen anyway, right? Well, if that's an objection that is, you think uh, you're thinking, if you're, if you're demotivated by what Paul's saying in some way, let me address that by using an illustration. And then also we're, gonna, we're going to talk about what Paul says after this. But think, think of this. A, a boy's father is about to leave on a two-week business trip. This boy and his dad have a great relationship. They love each other very much, very close. And so the father comes to the son and says, son, I've got to go on this business trip. It's two weeks long. I know that I've never left for that long. And I'll be away, and it'll seem like a really long time. But um, you can use mommy's phone to, to text me whenever you want to. And every night before I go to bed, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you on the phone. So the father then leaves. Well, do you think that the boy would say to himself, no, I'm, I'm not going to text dad. I'm not going to do it. Because that's not the same as him sitting on the couch with, with me, with his arm around me, us having one of those, those special chats that we always have. It's not the same as him sitting right next to me with his arm around me. So I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to text him. It's not the same. I'd rather not do it. Or when his mom calls from the other room at night and says, your dad's on the phone, come talk to him. Do you think he would say, no, I, I don't want to talk to dad. It's, it's not the same as him tucking me in. It's not the, the same as him giving me a kiss goodnight and, 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 and singing to me a song before I go to bed. It's, it's not the same. I can't see him. I can't touch him. I can't play with him. I, I don't want to talk to him. I think that would be true of the boy. Or do you think that he would take every opportunity to know his dad still, to, to experience him still. Even if it wasn't um, uh, as full as when he's there right next to him. Don't you think the son would, would take every opportunity to grab the phone and text his dad? Don't you think he'd be chomping at the bit to talk to him on the phone at night? To experience his dad, even if it's not as full as it usually is? but he would get to continue to know his dad, hear from his dad, to continue to experience his father. And as he got closer and closer to his dad coming back. Right. See, church, we, as we're moving toward the goal that will be perfected in heaven, we get to know Christ more increasingly and become more increasingly like him. Are you, are you saying that that's not motivating? You say, well, I can't know him perfectly in this life, but you get to know him more in this life, right? You'll get to know more of him. You'll get to experience more of Christ, so press on. 
Become more like him, even though it won't be perfected in this life as you move closer to eternity. But taste the sweetness of Jesus more and more. If you, if, if knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth, like he said in verse 7, or I'm sorry, verse 8, if knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth, and if we know him more and more as we imitate him and share in his sufferings, then why would we want to wait? Why would we want to wait, even if we can't know him, the way we'll know him one day in glory? No, you want to know. If, if he, knowing him is of surpassing worth, let's get started now. Right, let's move toward that goal and accomplish more and more of that by his grace in this life. Now, um, let's look at a reason here why Paul is pressing on. Look with me at verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own, right? Becoming like Christ, knowing Christ, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What does he mean? See, he means that Jesus previously sought him and saved him. And that is the reason why he is seeking to lay hold of Christ and become like him now. The rescue that, that Jesus brought to Paul and the ownership that he placed over his life is the reason why Paul is pressing on now. Don't you see the humility in this pressing on? Don't you see the humility in it? Paul's not pressing on because he's got to be perfect in order to be accepted by God. He's not pressing on so that he's got something that he can trust in to recommend him to God or to earn God's love. That's not why he's pressing on. He's not pressing on to earn anything because Christ has already laid hold of him, savingly. He's already made him his own. Christ has already done everything necessary to save Paul, and in response to that, Paul is now pressing on to lay hold of Christ. See, it's like the illustration that we gave last week. We're talking about that uh, illustration that Charles Spurgeon gave in his sermon on Philippians 3.10. Where he's, um, it's that, that man, the slave, who's brought into the arena. The rescuer comes and saves them from being killed by the lion takes him out of slavery, brings him to a house where all his needs are provided for, and he continually asks the servants, I must know my rescuer. Who is he? I must know him. It's because he rescued me. It's because I have freedom. It's because I've been provided for that I must know him. That's the mentality here that Paul has. He's laid hold of me. He saved me. So I want to lay hold of him. Because he's done everything necessary to save me, i got to know him i got to become like him. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Um, and Paul, you know, he, he uses similar language in Galatians 4, 9, where he writes this. He's talking to, to the Galatians, and he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, right? The only way that the Galatians could know God is because he first knew them and worked in them so that they could know him. That's what, that's what it is for us, church. God loves us first so we can love him. God knows us first so we can know him. 
He seeks us out, saves us, does everything necessary to bring us salvation so that we can know him and become like him for his glory. Church, we need this kind of humble thinking in order to press on in the Christian life. Because if you're pressing on in order to have something to trust in before God other than Jesus, some performance that you think will draw God's favor and love, then you will not know Jesus. Remember in in Philippians 3, 7, he says this, sorry, 3, 8, he tells us, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, he is counting his old gain list, right? His credentials that he was trusting in before God. He's counting them as loss so that he can know Christ. So that he can know Christ. And we would then say anything that we're trusting in other than Jesus Christ before God is a roadblock to knowing Christ. Anything that you're trusting in to recommend yourself to God, that you think it makes you acceptable before God, other than Jesus, that's a roadblock to knowing Christ. If you want to know Christ, you must trust Christ fully. Not, not in yourself, not in anything else, not any work or performance or status or position. Christ alone. You want to know Christ? Then trust Christ. In verse 12, we see Paul trusting in Jesus and not himself. Because he laid hold of me, I press on to lay hold of him. Now, we also see Paul's humility in the fact that he is telling the Philippians that he isn't there yet. He's not there yet. He hasn't attained perfection, and he doesn't know Christ perfectly. We must come to grip with this reality if we're going to be Christians who press on, right? If we slow down to celebrate, if we slow down to look at ourselves on the jumbotron, we will not press on toward the prize. We'll be like the hare from the story, the tortoise and the hare, right? What the hare do? He, he, because of his pride and his overconfidence, took a nap before he reached the finish line and he won the race, the tortoise. See, Paul understands that he's still a sinner. He understands that he doesn't know Christ perfectly yet. And so we would say he understands what John says in 1 John 1, 8. John writes this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He knows sin is in him still. He knows he's still walking around with the flesh. Paul knows he's a sinner, but God has used this realization in his life to bring him to a place of holy dissatisfaction, okay? God has used the fact that Paul is a sinner and that realization to bring him to a place of holy dissatisfaction with where he is in terms of spiritual growth. We, as followers of Jesus, are to be satisfied in Christ, but dissatisfied with where we are in terms of spiritual growth. Okay, let me explain. So when it comes to being satisfied in Christ, here's what we're talking about. We see Christ as the only one in whom we have true hope. The only one in whom we have true joy, true peace, right? True purpose and true identity, 
right? There's no need to look anywhere else for these things. So we're satisfied in Christ. But that does not mean we should be satisfied with our spiritual progress. Spiritual pride in where we are spiritually leads to complacency, doesn't it? Complacency in our spiritual walk. And that's a dangerous place to be when you consider that complacency leads you to slow down in the race to grab hold of Christ and know him and become like him. It leads you to slow down. You, you begin to, when you become pridefully complacent in your spiritual walk, you put your guard down against potential threats, right? And you begin to drift. You remember what Stuart Scott said about drifting? He said, no one ever drifted into holiness. So it's dangerous for us to be satisfied with where we are in our race, in our pursuit of Christ-likeness and knowing Christ. And we know, I think we've probably all experienced times of complacency in our spiritual walk. And maybe, maybe the reason why is because we've been practicing, this might sound strange, but we've been practicing not... Not Christ-likeness. We're not pursuing Christ-likeness, but we're, we're uh, practicing George-likeness or, or Susan-likeness, right? Or, or Sharon-likeness or Robert-likeness. You, you get what I mean? We're looking at other people and saying, if I can become like that person, then I'll be good. I'll be set. Now, don't, don't get me wrong here. We need to look to other believers who are, who are living uh, in a faithful way, following Christ faithfully, and say, I'm going to imitate that person as that person imitates Christ. That's good. But if you're saying, okay, I'm going to pinpoint somebody that I think uh, is living a life, a pretty good life. I'm going to, I'm going to live my life, life like that person. And when I do, when I get to that point, I'll be good to go. Just, that'll be a good place for me to stop and coast for the rest of my life. No, Christ-likeness is the goal. So, no matter who the person is, no matter who your spiritual hero is, Christ is always beyond. And he needs to be the one we're striving after, right? Don't become complacent. Compare yourself to Jesus ultimately and not others. That must be the prize, becoming like him and knowing him. And if that's, that's the case, if Christ-likeness is the goal, then we're going to continually be laying on the accelerator when it comes to our sanctification, right? Though, so we must have humility. If we're going to press on, we must have this kind of humble mindset. But we all must also put forth effort. So number two, our second point is the effort of pressing on. As we dissect the anatomy of pressing on, we've got to see that Paul is exerting effort. He's, he's talking about the, the, uh, the effort that he is giving in reaching his goal. Twice in this passage, Paul says, I press on. In order to make progress toward the goal of knowing Christ and becoming like him, Paul is in active pursuit, which is also why he uses the term in the next verse, straining forward. Right, in verse 13, yes, straining forward. This word paints a picture for us of a runner. Right, a runner as he moves ever closer to the finish line. As he moves closer to the finish line, a racer does not slow down. But instead, nears the finish line, stretching 
himself toward the tape, right? You, calling upon his body to stretch himself out as he moves closer to the finish line. There is not a slowing down. There's not a passivity. There's an active pursuit. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 9, 24, if you will. We'll parallel this. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Another, another place where Paul uses race language. He says here, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Run so that you may obtain it. See, Paul is using a race illustration again here, but he doesn't mean that, um, yes, there's, there's one prize, so there's only one person in all of human history that's going to get to glory and get to heaven, right? That's not what he means. What he means is that we need to run like that, right? Run like that. Uh, make that kind of effort, like a, a runner who's trying to win the prize and be first place. Run like that. Make that kind of effort. Have that kind of discipline. Have that kind of focus. That's what Paul's saying. But he, he doesn't mean that his effort comes from himself. Let me say this. He, we look at other places where Paul's speaking in the New Testament. He doesn't mean that he himself is exerting all this energy and the energy is coming from him. The effort's coming from him. That's not what he means. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to another uh, section of Scripture where he's speaking biographically, and that's Colossians 1.29. Look with me there, please. Where's this effort coming from? How is it provided? Colossians 1.29. Uh, actually, back into verse 28, and then we'll go into 29. This is what Paul writes. Him, that's Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, now listen to this. For this, right, for that goal, for this I toil. Or, or labor, or work. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We see here, this is, this is, we see some pronouns. We see I, his, he, right? I, his, he. The, the his and the he are, are referring to Jesus. The I is referring to Paul. So Paul is doing something here. Is he doing something in this verse? Yes, he's doing something in this verse. But so is Jesus, Paul is struggling or striving, and Jesus is powerfully working energy within Paul, energy that belongs to Jesus because he says his power. So how do we, how do we exert energy? How do we uh, exert effort in moving toward Christ-likeness and knowing Christ? By depending on God for all the grace necessary in order to strive. It's not that the effort and the energy and all the power comes from us. No, it comes from God. Christ is working it within us. For this I toil. But it doesn't mean we don't work. We work, but we work by his grace. He works in us so we can work for his glory. And so how are we to exert effort in pressing on toward knowing Christ and becoming like him? Like this. You follow Jesus. 
by doing what he commands, believing that he will work within you the necessary resources to do what he commands. All the while believing that any change that takes place in you, any improvement, any of you becoming more like Jesus and knowing him more is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, just look at 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? The Spirit, the one transforming us into the image of Christ. So you see all the trust that's going in? There's us stepping out on faith to follow Jesus, obey his commands, trusting that God is going to give us everything we need in order to obey those commands, and any change that takes place in us is due to Holy Spirit working in us. That's how we strive. That's how the Christian strives. It's by his power working within us. Now listen, um, at the time that Paul is writing this, Paul, he's been a Christian for about 30 years. Okay, about 30 years. Philippians was likely written in about AD 61. Paul was likely martyred in AD 67. He's coming to the end of his life and writing Philippians, right? So Paul's no new believer, but rather a seasoned Christian, right? This is important for us, church. We have a seasoned Christian, decades into his faith. And he's saying, I press on, I press on, straining forward to what lies ahead. Why is it that when we think of passionate zeal or, 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 or a flare for Christ, that we think of young Christians? Why, why is it that we, we think... Um, of new Christians when we think about running hard and fast after knowing Christ and becoming like him. Well, we, we see a lot of that new Christians, that, that energy, the eagerness. But Paul here, I think, is demonstrating something that should be normative for Christians. That as we get older in the faith, that should not decrease our zeal, decrease our passion, decrease our drive and our motivation to press on, to know Christ and become like him, but rather increase it. I press on. He's not, he's, it's not something where he is he's decreasing in his energy for Christ. It's something that he's still passionate about. When we are decades into our Christianity, we should humbly admit, I've not arrived. I'm not perfect. I don't know Christ perfectly, but I yearn for it. I yearn for that, and I'm pressing on by God's grace to have more of that. Follower of Jesus, I know it's easy to let yourself become comfortable in your Christianity, to become complacent in your spiritual progress as you get older. But let your age in the faith mean more zeal and more drive in the faith because you've had more experience in tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. You know that knowing him is of surpassing worth because there's been more, um, more time to experience his grace, more time to study his word. Let's pray. And if you, if you, if you say, if you, in your heart right now, you're thinking, I, I know I've been a Christian for like 20, 30 years. I just don't feel the way Paul feels here. Then Repent. You repent, his arms are wide open. He wants you to come and seek him humbly and he will give you what you need in order to start changing. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. 
I, I haven't desired you like this. I haven't been pressing on. I, I, I'm, I'm not becoming increasingly like you like I should. I, I'm just kind of petering along in my faith right now. Repent. Father, that's not been my heart, but I want that to be my heart. Change my heart and give me what I need to press on like Paul. Let me taste your sweetness. When I taste your sweetness, may it make me want to have more of you. See, here's the thing. Generally speaking, as we get older, we, uh, we tend to have more resources than we did when we were younger, right? I know when we're in college, we tend to be pretty poor, you know? The older we get, we tend to have um, more resources, and with more resources, we, we become workable. And we can allow comfort to kind of pervade our lives so that we stop uh, being put in positions where we, we feel like we need God's grace. Or we stop being put in positions where we feel like we need Jesus so much because we've, we've comforted ourselves. And that's not a good place for us to be in. We need to be a people who are straining forward, taking risks. As we looked at last week, sharing in the sufferings of Christ as we're seeking to be obedient to him, right? Denying ourselves. It's really easy when we're comfort, comfortable to say, yeah, I trust in Jesus. I, he, he, he's, my, he's my Lord. He's my master. I love him. He's my greatest desire. But then a trial comes and we really see where our trust and our, and our affections reside be people that even if we have the capability of making ourselves really, really comfortable, we should be taking risks, denying ourselves, following Christ so we can obey him and proclaiming him to this world and loving the body of Christ and loving other people in such a way that we are uncomfortable because when we're, when we're uncomfortable like that, we're propelled to Jesus Christ for grace and we are put in a place where we need to trust Jesus. And like we said earlier, when you trust Jesus, you know Jesus. You taste him when he's your refuge. You begin to taste his peace-giving, ministry-enabling, joy-providing grace through faith in him in those times. Well, let us turn now to our final point, the focus of pressing on. The focus of pressing on. We go, as we're talking about the anatomy of uh, pressing on, um, this focus is important because John MacArthur says, a maximum effort without focused concentration is useless. A maximum effort without focused concentration is useless in the pursuit of knowing Christ and becoming like him. You've seen this in children, haven't you? Right? They've had, they've had a few too many sips of mommy's frappuccino and they're spinning around the house like whirling dervishes and there's no aim right? There's no focus. There's no goal. And you, you stop your kid and you're like, what are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> but they, they keep going. And so you, kinda, you look over your wife and you're like, hey, let's, let's strap some Swiffer uh, pads to the bottom of their feet and get something out of this, you know? I mean, just all this energy, but no ambition, no goal to press on toward. That's not the way of the Christian who aims to know Jesus and be like him. Someone, according to Paul, like himself, who aims to know Christ more and to become more like him, forgets what lies behind, but strains forward toward what lies ahead, right? There's a goal. Now, let's, let's first take this terminology, forgetting what lies behind. 
talk about this for a moment. Paul does not mean that the things from your past, the things that you're forgetting, in other words, uh, should never, ever enter into your mind. That would be impossible mentally. But he does mean that those things should not influence or affect you negatively as you seek to know Jesus and become like him. It shouldn't affect you negatively in your pursuit. Now, the, the things that Paul forgets, that he's, that he's forgetting what's behind, the things that he forgets are probably referring to his old gain list, right? If you look at um, verses 5, I'm sorry, uh, let's turn back to Philippians. Yeah, if you look at verses 5 and 6, he's probably referring to his old gain list, his credentials that he used to trust in to give him acceptance with God, his heritage, his past achievements. He's probably referring to those things we can do that as well. We look back at our past achievements. We look back at the things we've done in our past accomplishments, and we trust in those things to give us spiritual value. We trust in those things uh, to make us complacent in our spiritual progress, and that trips us up. It snags us in our pursuit of Christ because we're trusting in something other than Jesus. But you know, it, it could also be that those things in the past are, are, are obvious sinful choices? Because he, he's, he's already said here, uh, I'm not, not that I've already obtained it or am perfect. He's, he, he's admitted he's a sinner still. And so it could be that we're referring to past sin as well. Things that are in our past that we've done or said that, that plague us, that haunt us. It may, that, it may be that way for you. You just can't look past those awful things that you did. You can't get past those awful things that you said. They stick with you and you expend a lot of mental and emotional energy trying to justify those sins to yourself. Make them sound better than they really are and and you start talking to people you know that will tell you what you want to hear so you can feel better about yourself and so you can have your conscience be put to ease. So you you talk to people you know are just going to kind of paint a, a, a good picture for you, not make you feel bad about yourself. And so you find it doesn't work, though. You find they still haunt you, those things from your past, those sinful choices. You don't feel like you know Jesus. You don't feel like your life looks at all like his. It's because in the same way, that the person who is looking at his past accomplishments and achievements and trying to trust them to give him uh, spiritual favor with God, in looking back to your sins and not getting over your past sinful failures, you're also seeking to trust yourself, right? You want to trust yourself to, um, to justify those sins. Maybe you're trying to atone for those sins yourself by doing more and more good. You find that you don't, you don't know Jesus and, and you don't look, your life isn't looking like his. Well, we've forgotten something in those times. We've forgotten something that we already covered back in verse 12. Paul believes that Jesus Christ has laid hold of him, that Jesus Christ has made him his own. And when we believe that, Church, when we believe that Christ Jesus has made us his own, then we're not trusting in ourselves past achievements. We're not seeking to trust ourselves to justify our past sins or to atone for those past sins. 
When we believe that Christ has laid hold of us, he's made us his own, we're believing that Christ has died for our forgiveness. And that he has died so that our sins are sent away from us as far as the east is from the west. And that leads us to focus not on what's behind, but what's ahead in heaven. You know, it may also be what's keeping you from structure, Jesus, is the fleeting, the fleeting pleasure of your past sins. You look back and sometimes, sometimes your past sins just seem sweet. They seem very attractive. And so you look back and you look back this, this yearning, this longing to experience that again. In those moments, it, it comes down to a trust issue. Again, you're not trusting what Jesus has said. You're not trusting what Jesus has done. You're trusting in the lies that your flesh is telling you. You're trusting in the lies that, that Satan is telling you. Because Jesus tells us things like John 15, 10, and 11. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He's speaking to his disciples. And he says in verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If we believe that there's joy back there in past sins, that there's abundant joy, there's fullness of joy there, we're believing a lie. We need to, in that moment, believe that because Jesus has saved us, because he's done everything necessary to bring us to God, that we can have fullness of joy in him. And so, church, let us trust in Christ, not seeking to trust in ourselves or anything else. We must continue to believe. And and we we have to remember these, these three short words that Jesus spoke to his disciples he, it's one of the shortest verses in the Bible when Jesus said in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. She looked back longingly toward Sodom and Gomorrah, which God was pouring out judgment on. Let's not be like that. Look forward to the better, the better prize, the eternal joy of knowing him, the surpassing worth of knowing him and becoming like him. Now, looking behind trips us up so that we aren't focused on the prize and we begin then to become distracted from our pursuit. It's illustrated in a secular example. Is in the 1954 British Empire and Commonwealth Games in Vancouver. Perhaps you've heard of the Miracle Mile. You had two men then, John Landy and Roger Bannister. They had both just recently broken the four-minute mile. They had run a mile in under four minutes. And they came together with these other men to, to run this mile race in Vancouver at these games. They were the two fastest mile runners in the world. And John Landy, in the race, leads Bannister almost the whole entire race until the final turn of the final lap when Landy looks over his left shoulder to see where Bannister is. Bannister takes this as an opportunity to come and pass Landy on his blind side for the win. Looking back to what's behind is dangerous for us 
when we know that Christ has done everything necessary to deal with our past, right? He's made it so that we can count all of that as lost because he is, he is the gain for us. He in his life and death and direction, the righteousness that's been given to us through faith in him, he made it so that he's our gain. Those things aren't our gain. We can, we can turn away from the past achievements. That's not gain. That's lost. He's our gain. So we can look forward toward him, the prize. And the past sins that we get hung up on and the fleeting pleasure of sin, we, we know he's spoken to that already. He's, he's paid for that sin. He's made it so it goes as far away from us as the east is from the west. And the fleeting pleasure of that sin, well, he's told us. It's a lie. And the fullness of joy is found in him. So he's, he's given us what we need to focus and keep us from looking from behind and focus on what lies ahead. Now, Instead of looking back, those who strive to know Christ and become like him forget what lies behind and instead strain forward to what lies ahead. And what lies ahead is what Paul calls here, verse 14, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our final goal is upward or heavenward. God is calling us there and we are straining toward the goal by his grace, right? In heaven, we shall see Jesus. We shall see Jesus and we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2. In heaven, at that final goal, after this life, we will know Jesus perfectly and then we will become perfectly like him. And so I ask you, that that goal, are, are you fixing your eyes on that price? Are you thinking much of heaven, church? Are you thinking much of heaven? Or, or because you are more familiar with what lies behind? Or are you thinking more of that? I, I think that to be maybe our problem, why we don't look as much to heaven as we should is because heaven tends to be kind of fuzzy to us sometimes. We, we know there's going to be joy there. We know there's, there's going to be singing there. We think maybe there's going to be clouds there, you know? And so it's kind of fuzzy. What, what is that? What's going to happen? What's it going to be like? And so it prevents us maybe from thinking of what that goal is and that prize is as much as we should. The Bible speaks to this a lot. We think it doesn't, but it actually speaks more to, to heaven and the eternal state more than we realize. So let's study heaven. So, so we'll think about it more. So we'll keep our eyes on the prize and we'll, and we'll press on toward it by his grace. And so so read, read good books on heaven, okay? Not bad books on heaven, good books on heaven. Don't, don't read heavenly tourism books. That's what they're being termed like where, where somebody supposedly goes to heaven and comes back. Don't read those books. Read good books on heaven, biblical books on heaven. I, I hear that the, the new book by John MacArthur, or it's a, it's a revised and updated a book on heaven called The Glory of Heaven, just came out this past year. It's supposed to be very good. Biblical understanding of heaven. Read a book like that. So we can, we can think much about what it'll be like to be like him perfectly and what it'll be like to know him perfectly so we can fill our minds with the goal so that we'll press on to know him and know him more and become like him and become like him more let me say this in conclusion first of all we look at verse 15 
And Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Mature believers think like this. We don't, we don't think passively. We don't think in terms of being comfortable in this life. We don't think of goals that can be attained here in this life. We don't think of, uh, we think of the goal that's beyond, that we're straining for, that will only be fully realized in heaven. And Paul has a singular focus in this. It's not just that he's looking forward and straining forward, but let me draw you to a few words here in verse 13 that we haven't looked at yet. But he says, but one thing I do, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. One thing I do. He has a singular focus. His focus is a singular one. This is the same Paul that wrote in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. All of life for Christ is summed up in Jesus. That's what his life is about, Jesus. Maybe you had the unfortunate memory of the, uh, the shirts that people used to wear. This is like basketball is life, football is life. You know what I'm talking about? I was in the marching band. They even had a, a band is life shirt. And that was, it's unfortunate because those things should not be what life is about. We, we can tend to have all these goals and all these ambitions and, and all these reasons for why we're living. But everything, everything in life should be a means to the end of knowing Christ and becoming like him. It doesn't matter what it is. All of your goals in life should be, come, they should come together. We should bring them together and make them means, not ends in themselves, but means to the end of knowing Christ Jesus as our surpassing, our knowing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and becoming like him. Here's the thing I want to leave you with today. So when you think about a race, you think about runners, What's the difference between someone running a race or an actual foot race and, and us as believers is that we've been promised the prize. We've been promised the prize. The runner that starts a race, he didn't know if he's going to win, right? He, he, he doesn't know he's going he's to run, but he doesn't know. We know. We get the prize. It's promised to us. So, and, and on top of that, Unlike a runner, okay, uh, a runner does not get to um, have more and more of, of some kind of joy or realization that he's going to get the prize. He doesn't know if he's going to get the prize, so he can't have increasingly more of an experience of that win because he doesn't know if he's going to get it. But we, as we're running our race, we can, as we run experience more and more of Jesus, know him more and more, become more and more like him as we get ever closer to the prize. So we're promised it, and then we get to experience more of him as we get closer. What reasons to strain forward? What reasons to focus on the goal? Church, there's no reason why we shouldn't strain forward. We don't do it in our own energy. We don't do it in our own strength. God supplies that. But he does command us 
we see other places run. Here, Paul is giving us an example. Run, press on. And we know whatever God tells us to do, he supplies the grace to do it because of Jesus. That's why we continue to live by faith. We we come to him by faith in Jesus. We continue to live by faith in Jesus because everything is supplied from God to us so that we can get there to becoming like him and knowing him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for what you've given us in Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to trust in ourselves. Trusting in ourselves will, will lead us away from you, Jesus. But trusting in Christ alone, that makes it so we know him. Give us the grace we need to run this race, God. May we follow Paul's example here. May we talk about these things so we can stimulate each other to, toward this kind of running today. May we not forget these things easily. May they stay with us. God, by your grace, may we apply them. And God, may we help each other always to remember that you are better. Whatever the alternative is, you're better. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory.